Praise the Lord. If you would open your Bibles to John 18, verse 1. John 18, verse 1. A couple weeks ago, we sang that one song, um, Isn't the Name of Jesus. What's it called, Steve? The Name of Jesus. Isn't the Name of Jesus. Um, and it was a, it's a beautiful, isn't the Name of Jesus wonderful? Isn't the Name of Jesus beautiful? It, there's power in His name. It's salvation. Anyway, that stuck, with, that stuck with me a lot, and I've been thinking about it dwelling on it because I always as a confession I'm very vulnerable I try to tell you what's going on in my mind I never fully got it the name why are we going for the name what about the person uh, since then the Lord has increased revelation understanding to me to understand how his name carries his authority it is a direct understanding of his character a proclamation of who he is okay and so as we look at these things I'm going to turn to one of my favorite passages in scripture because it's amazing to me and the depth of what goes on in this passage is profound. So I'm going to scratch the surface over it over the, over the next two weeks. Um, and then let's see what the Lord has for us. Praise the Lord. You know, remember back in the, the days of landlines, where you actually had a phone attached to your house? <laughs> Some of you still do, bless you. No, I, I personally have never had one since, since having my own place. And that's just because of what cell phones have done. But I remember growing up, we went through a tutorial in the Adelini household of how to answer the phone correctly because it mattered. So we went through a phone answering boot camp in essence. My parents wouldn't call it that, but I would. So the phone rings and we practiced. Practiced with a remote control or something else. Bling, 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 and then you pick up the phone. Thank you for calling the Adelini residence. This is David, how may I help you? That was, that was the go-to script. So not only do they know who they're calling, they know who is answering the phone, and then the prompt. The next step, my friend, in guiding the conversation is then what can we do for you? You called, here I am to answer. Now what? And then it goes directly to the, the person to respond, correct? You know what the beauty is about the landline phone? Until they got caller ID on it, you never know who it was that was calling. So to answer the phone, Thank you for calling the Adelini residence. This is David. How may I help you? Or how may I assist you? That was the option number two. Uh, you didn't know what was coming next. Is it a telemarketer? Is it my buddy from down the street? Is it a boy that may be calling to speak to a particular girl in the house? Is it? You never know. And so there's a lot of nervousness on the other end getting ready to hear the, um, yes, may I please speak to Steve? Or whatever it may be. Um, you know, those days are interesting because you can always see what's coming next and you know directly who that person is looking for. They know who that person is seeking. Make sense? As we get into the text here, there's an interesting question that Jesus poses to his, to his captors. He says, whom do you seek? And so I'm calling this little series, if whatever it is, two, two weeks, the garden story. Um, and then our first installment is this, whom do you seek? When you answer the phone, then the next question is, I'm seeking somebody. And you know those things. Jesus is the one that asked that question in the garden. Let's look at it because I got a couple answers. This is John 1. We're going to read from 1 to 11. It should be on the projector here if you need it as well. John 18, my fault. John 18, verse 1 through 11. Thank you, everyone. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. 
Just a quick footnote here, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, which goes with all the rest of the Gospels. The Kidron Valley is just a small brook, river kind of thing that they cross over. And so the Garden of Gethsemane outside of Jerusalem is approximately 300 yards, pretty close. It's on the way to the Mount of Olives. So this is a place that Jesus and his his disciples frequented much. It's where he went often to get time away, to pray, to be together, to kind of have a moment of silence for a second. So this is a frequented area. No, they would go often. It seems like this garden is walled because it says they entered it. Um, this is important kind of for the text and for understanding because as we read on, Judas is the one that obviously is the betrayer of Jesus, correct? And so he knows what Jesus does. He knows where he goes. He knows his, his spots of quiet, of prayer. So what is Jesus about to do? He's about to go to his crucifixion. He knows these things. He's bringing his disciples along to pray with him. And so the betrayer knows that spot. He knows those places that he goes to. Interesting, I find. Where the the garden which which he and his disciples entered, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? The word of the Lord. Jesus asked the question of his captors that I'm going to ask to you guys today. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? I think oftentimes, this is just me being vulnerable for you, I think that we're going to say Jesus Christ. We're going to say Jesus of Nazareth. But what does that mean? There are so many, there's so many complex answers to this question, and there's so many things going on in this little passage here because the Jews have an interpretation of who that is. The disciples have an interpretation of who that is. Jesus has a definition of who he is, and all of it gets mixed up in this one scene here because let's paint the picture. Judas the betrayer goes and gets a band of soldiers from the temple guard and from the Pharisees. That's a lot of people. And he comes with what? Lanterns torches and swords. What do you need those things for? A fight. He's expecting there to be some form of confrontation. Now, because of Jesus in his day, this has kind of been thought of many times. The Pharisees were looking over and over and over again to capture him. But the nervousness was if they take him in daylight, if they take him in public, there'll be a riot. The people that are following or the people that are enamored at least would not allow him to go easily. And so here we are at night, where it's quiet, where, where it's maybe not as noticed, where they can hide, and they come with light. 
They come with torches. They come with weapons because they're, they're looking not only for the, a confrontation or at least the calming of a riot, they're also expecting them to be hidden, right? So they're going to bring their torches and lanterns to light up the garden and figure out where they are. And instead of all those things, the beauty of what happens is Jesus confronts them first. Jesus stands before his captors and asks the first question, whom do you seek? He's not hiding. He's got nothing to be, to be scared of. You're going to see over and over in this passage, and I'm going to show you, it goes to one of my points, that he's in complete control. He is authoritative. He is calm. He speaks clearly. And he never stumbles over anything that's to take place. Even when Peter gets a little bit excited, please just put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup that my father has for me? And so as we come to this passage, there is so much going on, and I'm excited to be able to bring a little bit of clarity. But um, my question for you still is, whom do you seek? Are you looking just for comfort? Jesus is your comforter. Jesus is the one that just takes your pains away. Are you seeking just for success? Maybe Jesus is the one that just gives you the money, the needs to pay the bills. And so that's what he's done for me all my life. I've never, I've never been in need because of Jesus. Maybe fame, maybe friends, authentic community, maybe just more knowledge of him. And I submit this, I submit this purely in vulnerability to you. I think that it is a necessity for us to hold ourselves under the authority of Scripture. But I think oftentimes as believers in the church today, we take devotions, specifically Bible studies and corporate Bible studies, as a means for us to get more knowledge without more action. If you can hear that in humility. What does it look like for us to take all the things that we have learned and instilled and the Lord has put as a foundation for our life to be able to bring that to a hurting world rather than just to know the root of a Greek word? And I say this about myself as well. I've, I've studied a lot. I've learned a lot. What am I doing with it? How is that being used as a tool? And so I find myself saying this, especially during quarantine and all these things, we get on the camera, which is its own devilish device. It's so difficult to use. You get on it, and the first thing usually that I find myself saying was, good morning, church family. I want to encourage you today with a word. And please do not get me wrong. My heart is to encourage you and to push you towards Jesus Christ. But I wonder if we have created something in our language to say, the word of God is only meant for your perpetual encouragement rather than a prodding, rather than a challenging. If I show you Jesus, I believe you will be encouraged. And so it's true. The whole thing is true. Please don't get me wrong. feels like I'm correcting something right now, and that's not where I'm trying to go. But I want you to hear this. I wonder if, as we come to see who Jesus is, we're challenged by who he is, and that brings encouragement because he's life to us, because he's more than us. Because he's greater than we are. Because he's not soft and gentle. But he operates that way in compassion towards people. He also holds with his word, his spoken word, authority and power. So his characters, all those things, it's inviting, it's warm, it's welcome. But he also is a man on mission that knows what he's doing for his father's will, for a purpose, for a plan. And so I'm saying, who is Jesus? Who are you seeking? Is it just a soft, cuddly man that will hold you? He's there. It's in him. So amen. But let's broaden it to say he's also more than that as the shepherd of the flock that will guide you, that will guard you, that will push you, that will prod you to get in line again. 
So let's look at a couple things that I've kind of boiled it down to. The church is so encouraged that when hardship comes, I think oftentimes we might not see that we have the grit, we have the fortitude, we have the rootedness or the foundation to go through the maturing process of hardships. The Lord has given us the opportunity to do so for His glory and for our growth. So the question I pose to you and the question I pose to myself is, whom do you seek? I see many things in this passage, but I'm going to boil it down to three. The first one is this. We see a king. We see a king. So these captors come into his presence, and, they, and Jesus poses the question, whom do you seek? And immediately he answers, I am he. And there's this idea, all that takes place, we're going to talk about in a minute, about how they drew back and fell to the ground. But it's just the poise in the character of how Jesus stands before them to declare who he is. It shows his divinity and it shows his kingship. Right? So many times, I think, throughout the text, we see the Jews constantly coming against Jesus. Constantly bringing... Um, differences and different ideologies, trying to trick him, trying to trap him. And Jesus in wisdom, always understanding and seeing where they're going and in, in pervading those things to be able to bring a gospel message. And so here at this point, the king stands up and he says, I am he. Almost like in regal form and fashion. He is unashamed of the things that are about to come. He is the king because he's in complete control. We see his authority we see his tone. We see the, the way that he allows them to take him captive rather than creating a fuss. And it does so in his timing. Because after the second question, asking Jesus of Nazareth, I am he, he says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. He's communicating, commanding the crowd to say, do what I'm saying to do. If you're here for me, then take me. We see this oftentimes um, in parallel to that of David. How David stood for his people, how he ruled rightly, how he asserted himself at proper times, and how he answered properly to the call. But we see King Jesus here in a different way, in total perfection. You see, because Jesus, David had his own challenges. When it came time for David to fight towards the end of his life, he chose to sit on the couch and look out his window. There we find the story and the difficulty uh, of his reign then kind of coming to a, a climax and a downward turn when he took a woman that was not his, bearing a child that shouldn't have been his, and then, and then was on the line for murder trying to kill her husband. You see, Jesus is the perfect king because he didn't sleep on the job and he didn't just look out the window desiring other things. He stood in his rightful place and when the hardships came, he faced them. He led his people in an appropriate way. The band of soldiers came with lanterns and torches and weapons because they were looking for a fight. And Jesus, the king, comes with his spoken word and diffuses all of it. See, we don't need weapons and tools in the kingdom of God. All you need is authority that comes from the throne. So at the mention of his name, at the, at the very proper place of his kingship, people yield to his authority, and they understand who he is. When I was in elementary school, I got in trouble a lot for talking. I mean, that's not that bad of a thing, I feel like. I overall, was a pretty good kid, right? But I got in trouble oftentimes for talking, and so at the school I went to, you get time off of recess. 
And so it started in, in a 20-minute recess. David Adelini usually had about 10 minutes to play. So I sat on the curb, and I watched my friends, and I watched my friends, and I watched my friends. And it was to help me to learn to keep my mouth shut and my hands to myself. And eventually got there. It just took a long time. It was like fifth grade where I eventually got it. Out of six. Out of six grades, it took five. But that's cool. But one day at recess, after I got off the curb, some of my friends were in a small kerfuffle. They were fighting. And I didn't fully know what was going on. I wasn't engaged. I figured out these two dudes are starting to go at it. That's not good. And I was always a big boy. Doesn't mean I was strong. It means I was always a large man. And so uh, I was weightier than the others. And so I could put myself in front of them, at least, and dodge them. They were my buddies. And so actually what I did was I got in between them and I picked one up and I moved them over and was trying to stop, to stop them. Well, okay, later on that day, I get called to the principal's office. It's like, what is this? I wasn't the one doing it. And so uh, she, she was questioning me. And as we were going through some things, I said, I honestly don't even know why I'm here. That was pretty good communication from a young lad. I honestly don't even know why I'm here. I didn't do anything wrong. And she says to me, I asked for you to come. Very nerve-wracking experience that I still remember to this day. I don't even know the outcome of what happened. I don't know any of those things. But for the first time in my life, I was called to the principal's office. And I thought that I didn't do anything wrong. And it really wasn't a problem. She just wanted to hear my story. What happened? What did I see? But I encountered it as in this authoritative voice that came over me and calmed the situation to say, I'm the one that called you here. I see that in the text because they're coming in nervousness and in anticipation for a fight, expecting a riot, expecting the worst of the worst. And then they meet King Jesus himself standing, waiting for him. Your torches are useless. Your lanterns are not necessary. Your weapons will do nothing because he utters the first words. And in a calm voice, he says, whom do you seek? Whom do do you seek? These are small words, maybe, maybe not that powerful, but in the same way, the one that communicates it is powerful. And we're going to see in a second, the very words that Jesus speaks, they go to the core of the men and drop them because he speaks with such authority as a king, as one who is divine. My first point is, how do you come into his presence? I've asked you, whom do you seek? But a real challenge for us today, remember, I believe that encouragement comes through the challenge. I don't want to just puff you up. I want to push you. And so these are the same things that I, had, I was struggling doing this because, Lord, I, um, can I really speak these things? <laughs> I'm figuring these things out for myself. Lord, I, I come to you flippantly, expecting that you'll just hear my beckoning call and respond to what I need. And I, and I encounter you in this passage, and I come with all these things, and then I stand before you, and you're the one that says the first word. When I had an agenda, I had something that I wanted to communicate. I had something that I wanted to get across. But what you did was you dissolved all those things, cutting straight through it to say, who am I? Who do you see me as? Why would you come to me with these expectations when I'm the one who's king? See me in my rightful place and then speak to me. Whom do you seek? So how are you coming into the presence of the king? I, I confess to you, and I think a lot of us do, flippantly. Lord, forgive me. 
for not seeing you seated on your throne and coming with my head bowed down because you alone are worthy. He is in complete control. He is the king that has conquered all things. And this is the very beginning of his kingship where people look like he is just a dog about to be beaten. He is the one in complete authority as he hands himself over in perfect time, as he declares what will happen, as he is the one, what we look at in a second in John 10, that gives his life and takes it up again. Praise Jesus. Number one, he's king. Everybody say he's king. There you go. Praise him. Number two, he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. This is a direct, this passage is wild to me because all the things that are being spoken about in John are coming to fruition in these couple verses. Because all throughout John, Jesus is talking these seven I am sayings. I am this, I am that, I am the gate, I am the, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the vine. All these things are happening, proclaiming his divinity, proclaiming he is the king. Okay, And then he also, at one point, it comes to a place high enough where he says, before Abraham was, I am. All the Jews hated him for that one. And so immediately they get down and they pick up a rock because that's blasphemous. And they're ready to end it right there. And he's proclaiming over and over and over again in this book who he is, why he's come, what he will be doing. And so now we have the fulfillment of what he said, I am the good shepherd. In John 10, he says, he's the one who laces that life down and picks it up again. He's the one who lays his life down for the sheep. He has the authority from the Father to do these things. Okay, so are you being led by the shepherd, or have you found your own path to follow? That's my question for you. Yeah, we're seeking Jesus. I agree with that. And we come before him in the rightful way because he is king, but he's also our shepherd. So yes, he directs us with the authority of his spoken word commanding us what to do and where to go, and he also walks alongside of us in tender care, making sure we get there, prodding us, directing us. So please don't hear me. I'm not coming as a correction today. I'm saying he's everything. He's he. I am he. He's the great I am. That's my last point, but I can't stop it to get there. I am. He's all-encompassing. He's self-existent. And so as you come before him, how are you doing it? He's king. He's also shepherd. Come lowly. Come humble, come ready to be directed rather than having your own purpose and own agenda. I love this passage because he says, um, he says, uh, are you, do you know the shepherd's voice is my question to you because he says this, Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with him and Jesus said to them, I am he. He drew back and fell. Whom do you seek? I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then he later on says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? You see, the good shepherd will lose none of his sheep. And so he sacrifices himself so that his sheep aren't taken. So the guards came. They came up against Jesus. Jesus could have been arrested as well as all the people with him. And he says, if you're here for me, then take me. Leave these men alone. And so they arrest Jesus and his disciples actually follow. That's where we get the story of Peter's uh, betrayal or denial because he's following Jesus to see what they're going to do with him. So his disciples are safe. And this is a fulfillment of what he's saying is, I am the good shepherd. He says, not one of mine will be lost. The good shepherd lays down his life to save his own. And we see Jesus being just that, the good shepherd here. Do you know the shepherd's voice? The good shepherd cares. Again, he shows his authority and his character 
He shows his control over the entire situation. And he leads those even in his, even in his imprisonment and captivity. Are you being led by the shepherd or are you finding your own path to follow? I think as you hear the voice of the king proclaim over you, these are the things you should do and these are the things you shouldn't. The common question in our life is then, why shouldn't we do these things? Let's just figure it out why. Why that one tree? Why that one fruit? Instead of just hearing the command and following, we need to push and pride to figure out the reasons why we can't have things. I just want to remind us as, as followers of Jesus Christ, can we trust him without having all the answers? And it is so hard. But as a good shepherd, he's leading us where he wants us to go. He's directing us in the things that he would have us do for his namesake and for his glory. So can you follow the shepherd without having all the answers, knowing that he has the authority to lay it down and he has the authority to pick it back up again? Wow. So he's the king. He's a shepherd. And my last thing for you is this. He's the deliverer. This is its own series that could go on for years. And I'm just going to gloss over it, but you cannot help but to go to the very text. What happens when they're going, when, when Moses is commissioned and he's there at the fiery, the burning bush and he's, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. And he's speaking to this, this thing in front of him. Who does he say that he is? He says, I am. What should I say when the people say, who sent me? Tell them the I am sent you. I am who I am. It's a proclamation of Yahweh of his very character and nature, that he is all-encompassing. There is nothing outside of, of or beyond him, anything past, present, or future. He is the greatness that is great. He's everything. And so all over the book of John, the Jews, the Pharisees, they hated it, but he says, I am he, I am this, I am that. All of it, the same root word, going back to the very same thing, constantly reminding the people of his divinity of his kingship, but also that he is our deliverer. The Yahweh is the one that came up against all the gods of Egypt. Yahweh is the one that had a showdown for 10 plagues. Yahweh is the one that opened the Red Sea and let them walk on dry ground. Yahweh is the one that instituted the fundamentals of his kingdom through the economy of how we're supposed to operate and act through his law. And he's the one that had a plan of redemption from the very, very beginning. And so now we come to the garden again. You see, the story started in the garden where the seed of sin came and man fell. And the hope of redemption was first mentioned. Fast forwards to a garden where betrayal exists. It happens. And then it ends in a garden again. This garden where the grave is. John 19 mentions that Jesus' tomb was in a garden. And so his resurrection comes, the life comes, the hope that we have still comes from the great I am and the amazing story of redemption that he has from beginning to end. So what we see here is even from Exodus when he's leading his people, the great I am is the deliverer. And here standing in front of his captors, whom do you seek? Three easy words. He could have gone on for a litany of paragraphs and sentences and sermons. But he says, I am he. I am the great I am. I am, I am part of the Godhead. Jesus Christ was present then and he's present now. Jesus says, I am he, and what happens? When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see, in the very presence of Jesus Christ, nothing can stand. In the very authority of his spoken word, everything yields. It mentions no physical touch, 
There's not a lot mentioned in this text other than the proclamation of his name. And at the very mention of the name of Jesus, nothing can stand. His captors are hit to the very core with what? I'm not sure. Guilt? Shame? Astonishment? Majesty? Because they're encountering Yahweh himself, the great I am, in human form, Jesus Christ. So I am he is the proclamation, and they, they fall to the ground in reverence, in essence. Because you cannot stand in the presence of God. Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. So then he goes to delivering not only those that follow him, but he goes then to the course of delivering all of humankind in creation. Because he knows, then Jesus, knowing all that would, have, that would happen to him, came forward and said, I am he. You see, the deliverer saw the hardship in front of him, and instead of in cowardice running away, he confronts it and said, I know what's about to happen to me. I know the misery that I'm going to face, not only physically, not only emotionally, not only between a, a severed relationship with my father as he turns his back on me on the cross and that I'm becoming sin. But he stood there knowing all those things, being willing to say, I am he. I'm about to take it all on. It's actually a great moment of confidence and boldness, not of cowardice as he's being captured. I don't know what is in your life right now that maybe is so big of an obstacle that seems like it, it maybe battles your mind or battles your heart. Whatever it may be, if it's physical, if it's mental, if it's relational. But I just want you to know that Jesus is the great deliverer. And as these guards stood before him, they represented guards. So I'm not going to read too much in this story. But I will say this. As they stand before him, they yield to the very presence and to the, to the calling of his, of his voice saying that he is God in essence. And so whatever it is in your life, bring it before Jesus Christ because he is the great deliverer. He, is. he proved that by becoming sin on the cross by taking all the things that you have, all the pains that you have, all the brokenness that you have, He was broken for you so that you, in your rightful place now, as a co-heir as you believe in Him, don't have to be mastered by those things, but you can be delivered from them in His very presence. Here's what I want to give to you, though, church family. And this is something that the Lord is working in me in. What stands before the I am will bow. But I don't, I don't think Jesus can do what he wants, please. It shows all throughout the storyline of Scripture, when he commands something, it happens. Healing happens in a moment in an instance. But this is an amazing text. I think knowing all that would happen, he still says, I am he. Knowing what he would be delivered into, he goes through it. So I want to make this statement because I think it's true. Jesus does not look to simply deliver you from hardships. He wants to deliver you through those hardships. He didn't take away the cross. That's what he was praying about in the garden. Lord, please, if there's any other way, if there's anything else, let this cup pass from me. That's what we see in the other accounts of the Gospels. Then the guards come and he stands up. I know my place and I know what I'm to do and I'm going to set my face to doing it. The Lord doesn't just deliver us from things. 
He delivers us through things. So Jesus still went through the pain and suffering of the cross. He still went through the separation of knowing that God would turn his back on him because he was sin. He went through actual death. He actually died. And then he brought himself up again. So I just want to remind you that our deliverer is strong, strong enough to do all things. But if prayers aren't answered in the immediate, here's the reality for us because he lived it himself. He's also strong enough to bring you through things because he is our great deliverer. And that's the hope that we have in him. Knowing all that would happen to him and knowing that this was the cup that his father has given him to drink, he says, I am he because he is our great deliverer. Bowing at his presence isn't enough, church family. The guards did that. They fell before him at the recognition that he is God, that he's divine. But then they got back up and arrested him. Bowing in his presence is not enough. It's what you do when you get up that matters. What does that transition from your knees to walking it out in life look like? There has to be a heart transformation. You have to actually yield to the king. You have to be led by the shepherd. You have to know the deliverance that he has extended towards you and what he's done through the cross as our great deliverer. Because he is above all things, in all things, and through all things. Honor the king, be led by the shepherd, and live in the deliverance that comes from the fulfillment of the great plan of redemption that started in the garden and ended in the garden. Bowing at his presence is not just enough. You must yield to his purposes and surrender to his will. He is Jesus Christ. The garden story. Remember death that has brought you life, that all happened in the garden. The seed of sin and the promise of redemption through betrayal. And then John 19 telling us again that the hope of the resurrection, is his, his tomb was in a garden. God is truly good to us. And as we come to his word, as we come to Jesus, as we seek him, let's seek him in an appropriate manner because as we see him, we're not only transformed, but we're encouraged and we're made more like him. God is truly good, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Praise him. Um, we're going to end with a song. And as the worship team comes up, let me just pray for us. Jesus Christ, we yield to you because you are our king. Because you are the good shepherd and because you are our deliverer. And so, Father God, we challenge our hearts today to say that if we come before you in, the, in, a, in an inappropriate manner, Lord, forgive us. <clears throat> or if we've proclaimed you as the good shepherd but don't want to follow your path, Lord Jesus, forgive us. Or if we see you as our deliverer and we bow down but then immediately stand up and do our own thing, Lord, forgive us. Because, Lord, we want to be like you. We want to live like you. We want to breathe like you. We want to speak like you. We want to act like you. Father, thank you for the goodness and the greatness of who you are and for what you've done in our lives. And so because of your, your preached word this morning and because of your sacrament and means of grace, Lord, we remind ourselves that we are not only forgiven, but we are made new in you. And we say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us the ability to follow you and to follow you appropriately, to see who you are and to live in accordance to your word, and to know, Lord Jesus, that you've called us to a place uh, of, of victory and authority because of who you are. But, Lord, we know that that might not be easy. And so, Lord, please see us through difficult times yes. because you are a great deliverer. 
Your grace is sufficient. We follow you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.